Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And now, here are your hosts, Pastor Sean and Pastor Peter. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined by Peter Martin to answer your Bible questions for the next hour. If you'd like to send us your questions, feel free to email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. The spelling of that will be provided on any of our social media links. However, if you are joining us on Reach Radio, well, again, the questions are plural, F-O-R, hope at gmail.com. If you want to make sure that you've got that right, you can join us again on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. That's C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. And what's going to be important about that is not only the opportunity to clarify our email address, but also from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time every single weekday, we are live streaming. You can engage with us face-to-face on the broadcast and on the right-hand side of the screen. Leave your questions in the comment section we've provided. Note as well, we can do the same for you on YouTube and Facebook. Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and YouTube is a reason for hope. However, the one thing we can't control on YouTube and Facebook is when or why we're taken down. It's happened a number of times, and it will continue to, so we recommend you join us most regularly on our website, which is, again, C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, ChristianFellowship.com, and there we will make ourselves available to receive your questions and also to answer them as we are going live. All you have to do is click on the Watch Live tab, and you'll be able to engage. But note, If you want to know when we will be broadcasting next within your respective time zone, we'll have countdown clocks for the next broadcast provided in that link, and as well, our YouTube and Facebook pages will notify you if we are still using them. But note that if you want to follow us on any or all of those platforms, that's how you can engage with us on sending us your Bible questions. As long as they are sincere, meaning you want to hear the answer, they are about the Bible and the substance of the question and the answer, and of course that they are asked in the form of a question, we'll be happy to receive them. We won't be able to answer them directly, or at least as directly as we'd like to on our live stream and our radio broadcast, but if you also want to send us a Twitter uh, feed question, I suppose that can also be done at ScottR4H at Twitter. So with all that said, and to give us the most amount of time for the questions we want to get to in the broadcast, we want to get started, but we would be remiss if we didn't take the time to, of course, dedicate this moment to the Lord, make sure that He speaks more than we do. So let's do that. Dad, thank you that we have the chance to not only be in your word, but among your people, and we pray in your spirit. Equip Peter and I to not only speak with your words, but with your heart, to protect us from error and enable us to speak the truth in love as your word outlines it. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so continuing on with our sola fide discussions, we've been going through the solas of the Protestant Reformation leading up to Reformation Day, which will be at the end of the month of the time this broadcast is recording. And for the sake of your edification, and in case you don't speak Italian, uh, the sola fide is sola or alone faith, fide or fidelity, think in those terms. When we're talking about these 
cries, basically, for Reformation to the Roman Catholic Church in the mid-15th to 16th century, we're talking about people wanting to get back to the roots of what Christianity actually taught, not the traditions that had dominated and basically coerced people into a form of Christianity by name, but not by belief, and that's the problem. We went through last week some of the issues that were at work in some of the sacraments. The sacrament, again, sacrum means sacrifice. It's uh, something that you would do in remembrance of or in reverence of God. But these things are dictated to people to do with Scripture in mind, but unfortunately at in conflict not only with other Scripture, but even their own teachers. So we want to make sure our beliefs are consistent with that. When we're continuing on this route, obviously you're going to see these not necessarily anti-Christ, but certainly anti-gospel teachings that are being spread in the name of Christianity. We want to be able to give an answer for the reason for the hope that is within us, that salvation is indeed by faith alone. But a Roman Catholic would argue otherwise. It is not only required to believe, but it's also required to observe their sacraments, which are, we talked about this last week, baptism, specifically baptismal regeneration, uh, penance, which is usually uh, expressed in the form of confession, the confirmation, meaning your membership in the Roman Catholic Church is what solidifies you as sealed by the Holy Spirit, the anointing of the sick, which is again not a salvation issue, as well as holy orders and matrimony. Uh, I'm single, he's married, neither were done in a Catholic Mass, but it would be considered just a blessing, not necessarily a requirement for salvation. They haven't gone the Mormon route. But the big one, for every Roman Catholic worth their wafer, you'll note the joke in a moment, is going to literally die on this hill when it comes to what makes or breaks you as a Christian. And it's not only the reception of salvation through faith, but the participation in what's called the Eucharist. Now, Peter, could you explain what that is and why we'd have a problem with its advertisement? Right. So the word Eucharist just means thanksgiving. Right, so that, that's all it means, and it was something that was initiated by the early church. A lot of the early church fathers talked about the Eucharist. We don't use the word anymore, and maybe in our rhetoric lessons we'll talk a little bit about the equivocation fallacy. The reason why we don't use the word anymore is because it's been tainted by a modern-day understanding that's gone away from its original understanding. But again, the word Eucharist just means thanksgiving, and what we mean as Christians is that we are giving a thanksgiving offering to God in participation of what we call communion. This is something that Jesus presented to the disciples, and you have to remember really quickly before we even get into Eucharist, uh, Jesus presented this as a part of the Seder meal. So it's not like Jesus just sat down with his disciples during a church service and he started breaking out grape juice and wafers and said, hey, let me teach you guys something. No, they, they were doing something that was wrapped in ceremonial importance. They were going through the Seder meal which was a ceremony that rem that was committed to the remembrance of God's deliverance of the Jewish people from the land of Egypt and slavery. Jesus is then breaking down this meal in reference to him. He's saying, I am the Passover meal. I'm everything. I am the lamb, right? He's referred to as the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus coming to him at the Jordan, he says, behold, the lamb of God that was slain, uh, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, right? So Jesus has already made himself like, hey, when we're eating this lamb together, I'm I'm the lamb, right? You guys are 
eating the sacrifice. You're remembering what God did to the people of Israel back in the day when you had to put the blood of that lamb on the on the lintels on the doorpost. I am the fulfillment of this. I'm not going to deliver you from slavery in Egypt. I'm going to deliver you from slavery to sin and death. I'm going to deliver you from the greatest slavery that any person has ever been a part of. And then towards the end of the meal, he took two elements of the Seder meal, right? There's four cups, by the way, I'm not going to go through them right now, but there are four cups in the Seder meal. Jesus takes one of the cups and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant. He's saying, this, you guys have been drinking this with a certain understanding of it. I'm giving you a new one, right? When you drink this cup, you're no longer going to think about God delivering the people of Israel from Egypt. You're going to think about me. You're thinking about what I am about to do on the cross. He takes a piece of bread, the matzah, a specific piece of the matzah called the afikoman. And by the way, if you guys want a really good Bible study, look up Jews for Jesus and the Seder presentation. It's amazing. It's like 30 minutes long, and it's just really, really good. You'll never take communion the same ever again, right? It's, it's really, really incredible. But anyway, right, so he takes a very specific part of the matzah that is broken already, and he says, this is my body. He's like, you guys have been eating this for hundreds of years. I'm about to tell you why it's broken. It's my body, broken for you, right? And he breaks it for them, and he gives it to them. So there's a lot of deep symbolism there of him teaching us about this Eucharistic presentation, or what we today call the communion. Now, where the Roman Catholics get away from us is they believe that it is not only a communion with God, it's not only a remembrance of what God has done previously for his people in delivering us from slavery to sin and death, but they actually believe that it is an efficacious representation of the sacrifice of Jesus, and therefore it actually has the power to forgive sin. So don't take my word for it. This is from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 1364. says, When the Church celebrates the Eucharist, she commemorates Christ's Passover, and it is made present the sacrifice of Christ once for all on the cross remains ever-present. As often as the sacrifice of the cross by which Christ our Pasch has been sacrificed, it is celebrated on the altar. The work of our redemption is, present tense, carried out. That's the issue. The Eucharist is thus a sacrifice because it represents, makes present, the sacrifice of the cross because it is its memorial and because it applies its fruits. So when a Roman Catholic takes communion, when he takes the Eucharist, he's not saying, thank you, God, for what you've done for me. I'm remembering what you, the amazing sacrifice of Jesus. I'm taking this bread, remembering that your body was broken for me. I'm taking this cup, remembering your blood was shed for me. They're taking it, thinking, no, 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 by this very particular ceremony, the substance of these elements has been transformed, a word that the Roman Catholics use is transubstantiated. The substance has actually been transformed from a wafer and wine to the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ, that I am representing the sacrifice of Jesus to the Father, and because of that, it has efficacy in atonement. It's actually helping in the forgiveness process before God. Without it, I am not being forgiven. So they take the words of Jesus literally. We're going to exegete John 6 in a second. They take the words of Jesus a little bit too literally when he says in John 6 that if you do not eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no part of me. 
right? So they take that and they're like, if you don't believe that when you're taking the wafer, when you're drinking the wine, that you're literally re-imbibing the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, you have no place in heaven. Now, Roman Catholics take a really hard line on this. Uh, Eastern Orthodox take a more like wishy-washy. They're like, eh, you know, it's a mystery. Yeah. You know, I, I don't really know. You know, it's, is it really the body and blood? Well, yeah, kind of, but it's a mystery. We just we just accept what Jesus says, and that that's it. Uh, Anglicans have a kind of a similar view, but there are more like Roman Catholics. So there are actually Protestant denominations that believe in what's called the real presence. So the main passage that they have to go on is John chapter 6. So we don't want to be people who are just like, well, that's your tradition, we got our tradition. No, we believe that Jesus said something very specific, and we believe that that specificity carried meaning, and we want to gain the real meaning of Christ. So let's exegete it, and to make sure we're not exegeting it wrong, we're going to look at church history and see how the early fathers looked at it which is an authority they'd consider. So let's start again in John chapter 6, where the whole conversation, of course, began earlier on in the chapter, but it was presented basically in a context where they are being basically uh, advertised as the recipients of food. Jesus has just performed the miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. They appreciated not only the free meal, but also the source that it came from. And Jesus then begins a conversation explaining to them, you're coming to me for physical food. I'm here to give you a greater food. And so the conversation begins. When they uh, complained about this fact and saying that if you have me, then I will raise him up the last day. He who believes in me shall never, uh, he who believes in me shall never hunger, never thirst, on and on it goes. But let's start in verse 41 where they said, why did he say, I am the bread which came down from heaven? And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How then that he says, I have come down from heaven? So notice the bread topic isn't even what's controversial here. The concern is, we know where you were born, we know where you grew up, how are you claiming that you came down from heaven? You're making yourself this picture. So that's the first start of the issue. Verse 43, then Jesus addresses that you can't come to me unless the Father draws you. But note, and it's prophesied as that such is the case in Isaiah 54, and he goes on to say, this is in the object of the conversation, verse 47, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Now, that sounds like sola fide, but let's keep going. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. So he's making a contrast between the literal bread that was sent down from heaven and this bread which is sent down from heaven. I am, notice this, bread which comes down from heaven, you may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So the Catholic side will emphasize on eat. It's in the text, we wouldn't question it thus far. But note the point that's being made and he will live forever. The bread that I shall give is my flesh, the substance is what's being emphasized, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, how could this man give us his flesh to eat? So now the object is on the bread. He says, most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. 
as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead, he who eats this bread will live forever. Then it notes where he said this. Now, the Roman Catholic position would note verse 58, 59 for maybe a little historical detail, but as far as the laying down of doctrine goes, full stop verse 58. That's the substance of it. Jesus couldn't be more clear. He repeats it three times. I'm the bread. Eat of me. Drink of me. My blood. My flesh. You don't have eternal life unless you eat. And some may even try to twist some of the ancient uh, languages grammar and say on well, the Latin. It's this emphatic ongoing process. Great. Verse <clears throat> 60 exists though. And on it goes. Therefore, in light of the things we're talking about, when they heard this, they said, This is a hard saying. Who could understand it? And Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this and said to them, Does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? So notice, already we have this transitional issue. You don't believe I was sent down from heaven? You're having trouble with that? How are you going to believe if I'm then going back to heaven? The ascension, if you will. Then he goes in verse 62, or 63 rather, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Let me read that again slowly. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you not just at this moment, but the therefore is in light of this whole conversation going all the way back to the start of chapter 6 and before. The words I speak to you are spirit, and they are life, but there are some of you who do not believe. Not some of you who haven't eaten, not some of you who won't eat, it's some of you who don't believe. The, corn, or the bookends of this whole conversation is you believe in the Son of Man. How may we work the works of God? This is the work of God. Same chapter, by the way. That you believe in the one whom he has sent. He who believes in me has everlasting life. Your fathers ate the physical manna. The physical profits nothing. The, the flesh profits nothing. <laughs> yeah. I'm the spiritual bread right. that came down from heaven. The spirit is life. Right. So the question then is in the application of spirit. Is Jesus being spiritual, or is he describing this physical fleshly bread has a spiritual effect? There's the debate. Yeah. Now, I'm going to read this quote from after listening to Sean talk. This was written in early 200s or late 100s AD. This is the first time in church history that a father gives an exegesis of John 6. That we have writing of. That we have, that we have uh, physical writing of. There, there may have been others, but this is the first writings that we have of it. It's by a guy named Tertullian. Now, let me know if this sounds familiar to what Sean just said. He, so this is Tertullian speaking, he says, it is true that the flesh profiteth nothing, right? So Tertullian is quoting, he's fixating on that sentence of Jesus, like, this is important. But then, as in the former case, the meeting must be regulated by the subject which is spoken of. Now, because they thought his discourse was harsh and intolerable, supposing that he had really and literally enjoined on them to eat his flesh, he, with the view of ordering the state of salvation as a spiritual thing, set out with the principle. It is the spirit 
that quickeneth or giveth life. That's the King James E way of saying that, right? Uh, and then added, the flesh profiteth nothing, meaning, of course, to giving life. He also goes on to explain what we what he would have us to understand by spirit. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. In a like sense, he had previously said, he that heareth my words and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but shall pass from death into life, constituting therefore his word as the life-giving principle, because that word is spirit and life. He likewise caused his flesh by the same appellation, because two, the word had become flesh. We ought therefore to desire him in order that we may have life. To devour him with the mouth? No. To devour him with the ear? to ruminate on him with the understanding and to digest him by faith. Sounds pretty similar to what you just said, Sean. And uh, well, it does sometimes give the illusion that I'm more educated than I seem. <laughs> I haven't read that. <laughs> I'm not much of a fan of Tertullian, if I'm going to be perfectly honest. Yeah, he, is, he has some bad marks. But, yeah. but the whole point being made is this. That's like t- I haven't been preparing for this today. We, we've had you know studies in Daniel, studies in Revelation for the message tomorrow. I'm just reading through the text and going off of what I remember about the whole chapter. The only reason you would infer these sort of things is if you had that handed to you by someone you trusted. Now note, Mm -hmm. there's not necessarily a problem with trusting people, but if your trust causes you to lay aside the obvious in favor of the obscure, then we have an issue, not just the fact that you're being led. You can Mm -hmm. be led in good directions. But you can also be led in bad directions. We'll talk about this more if we get to appealing to authority. The point being made is this. When we talk about the sacraments and the emphases on all of these things, we take careful time and consideration to note Catholics aren't heretics. It's not a cult par excellence. But people do step into cultville where they get church doctrines, church traditions, and put them on par with or even in authority over the Bible. Now, Protestants can do this, Catholics can do this, denominationals and non-denominationals can do this. The point of emphasis needs to be the order and the application being understood in alignment with each other. And if you And that's that's an important point that you made. So, you know, the reason why I'm appealing to Tertullian is not because I'm like, well, he's an authority. I don't really care who's saying it. I care why they're saying it. So when you look at his reasoning as to why he's looking at this passage in this light, he's giving sound biblical exegesis. He's looking at Jesus' words. He's like, huh, he says the flesh profiteth nothing. That's a little strange if his then exhortation is, well, then you got to do this physical thing with your flesh, and that's going to save you. So his his reasoning is very sound, and his exegesis of this, the text is very sound. So like Sean said, I appeal to it not only because it gives us an understanding of, when we're looking at this text, other people throughout church history have seen it this way. Uh, it also gives us a sound exegesis of the text, which is really beautiful. But if you're talking to your Roman Catholic friend who's going to affirm to you, hey, this has always been the belief of the church for 2,000 years. There's never, ever, ever been any disagreement about what this means. You could show them this and be like, eh, not really. You know, it, it hasn't been the firm belief of every single person throughout the church for 2,000 years. So uh, that's, that's very important. And let me just wrap this up by reading the words of the Apostle Paul. 
1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 22, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So let us just leave you with this, this good thing. The act of communion, or Eucharist, if you want to call it that, is fine. The act of communion is one of the most beautiful acts of worship that a Christian can engage in. I think sometimes, like I said, in Protestant circles, we're like, eh, you know, it's not a really big deal. It is a big deal, just like baptism. It is a big deal. You are committing your body to walking through a ceremony that reminds you of why you believe in Jesus and the importance of his death and his resurrection. These ceremonies are important. They're, they, they do have efficacy, not to our salvation, but to our understanding of God and our recommitment of ourselves to him. And what Paul says, that as often as we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death till he comes, he's like, this is an act of worship. You are proclaiming, when you're eating it, you're remembering, Jesus died, he, he gave his life for me, he gave his blood for me, and you're doing it until he comes. You're remembering that, you know what, this is a, this is a symbol of what Jesus did, but he's coming back right? This is real. Jesus actually died for me. He actually rose again, and he will return for us in a moment in history, and I am excited for that, right? So communion is a very beautiful, it's one of the most beautiful acts of worship that we as Christians have. Don't take it lightly, but also don't go too far and think that it's literally forgiving you of your sins. Yeah, it's not how you stay saved, it's remembering how you were saved. And for those, again, it's like, but you don't understand transubstantiation. Okay, well, not to throw too quick a monkey wrench in it. This is Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 10. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Not every time a Mass is held, not every time that a communion service is hosted, once for all. I encourage you to read the whole chapter. Again, Hebrews chapter 10, but verse 10, easy to remember, 10.10, is in fact a whole derailing of the assumptions there. You'll see a lot of hand-waving. Roman Catholics have been dealing with this. I'm not the first person to be literate and to hear these bad doctrines, but let's just make sure we understand the reason for the hope that is within us, and it's not in our continual membership in the Catholic Church, which we will discuss next week. But with all that being said, we'll go out to your questions now and appreciate you hanging in with us thus far. Got a few questions, but I want to make sure they're clarified first. Uh, this one comes from Nina, who wants to know, why does God hate pride so much? There's a follow-up in saying, like, it's usually mentioned last in lists of things that God has a problem with, or not in a particular order. Just quick clarification, order of presentation isn't necessarily order of importance. You could save the worst for last. That's also possible. But uh, C.S. Lewis had a few interesting observations about pride being the king of all vices, but again, we don't... Uh, follow Lewis. We're not, uh, you know, CS uh, followers, but... CSites. <laughs> yeah, whatever that would be. But if, on the other hand, we were to acknowledge a biblical point, we can agree with the same observation. Pride is that serious, Nina, because like any other deviation between God's character and ours, that's what sin is. We can't basically top it any farther than the first 
evil ever manifested, and that was in Isaiah chapter 14 with the fall of Lucifer. When we're talking about Lucifer pre-pride, we're talking about, you know, details in Ezekiel 28, the anointed cherub that covers a worship leader in heaven, his instruments and his coverings are just the most beautiful things you'd ever seen, perfect in wisdom, perfect in beauty, but iniquity was found in you, this innate uncleanness, and that was what? That he would, this is again quoting Isaiah 14, ascend higher than the position that he was, that he would be ascended above even his fellow angels, that he would be like the most high. And God answered with one quick reality check, no, you won't. But the point being made is this. When we adopt the sort of attitude, and mere Christianity has a whole chapter set on this, going into that competitive spirit, I personally understand this, take it or leave it, understand it as a self-deception, an attitude that deceives yourself and sees others falsely, and yourself as well, a false view of yourself and others. So if I see myself as greater or lower than I actually am, I'm either A, going to diminish myself or exalt myself, but ultimately the error is in a self-centered focus, a self-centered attitude. And when we ask what sin isn't that as its starting point, whether it's in actions or an attitude, a covetous nature, a murderous nature, an adulterous nature, when we put ourselves at the expense of others or our fellowship with God, that's literally the foundation of sin. That's why God doesn't like it too much. But anything uh, more to note? I know you wrote a, a few snippets on yeah. this in your own book. <laughs> uh, yeah, shameless plug coming. Uh, I did write a chapter on this in my book, Rooted in Sin, Rescued by Love, where I, I do take a lot from C.S. Lewis and under, his understanding of uh, the pride of the sin of pride. And it's uh, that chapter in Mere Christianity is really life-changing. It's very beautiful. But uh, this is the main passage I could point to to... Uh, give a little bit of credence to what Lewis points out, that pride is the queen of all vices. It says in Habakkuk 2, verse 4, uh, by the way, probably the most quoted passage in the entire New Testament, Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. So we have this very important juxtaposition where he's saying that there's people who are justified by faith in God, but and that, again, Paul and the other apostles quote this all the time to prove that faith has always been the mode of salvation for God's people. But what is very important is Habakkuk sees that the people who can't receive this doctrine are proud people. Why? Because proud people, either A, like you said on the spectrum, Sean, either A, they don't believe they're in need of salvation by faith, because they think their works are adequate in themselves, they think too much of themselves, or B, they don't think that they're deserving of salvation because they have too low a view of themselves, and so they'll never seek it out by faith. They'll always try to become worthy in order to receive it, as opposed to recognizing the just shall live by faith. The only way I'm going to be justified before a holy and righteous God is to do away with pride, to humble myself, and to become fixated on the glory of God. This is why one of the solos of the Protestant Reformation is only for God's glory alone, right? And you use that word humble. That's 
key because people, again, think that, well, if I'm lowering myself, isn't that humility? If I think I'm the lowliest worm ever, am I the most humble person? What would be the problem with that? Right. So humility is actually an absence of pride. It is not Not the opposite. Not an opposite, right? So someone who's humble is simply just not thinking about themselves, right? They're so consumed with something else that they're not thinking about themselves. This is why in the Bible, it doesn't talk about, well, you know, if you really want to be spiritual and holy, you just got to beat up on yourself. You got to think about what a low piece of junk you are, and then you'll be spiritual, then you'll be righteous. No, the, the idea is 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, beholding as in a mirror, the only glory of the Son of God, we are being transformed into his same image from glory to glory. What's the mechanism of transformation? Beholding. Not yourself, not navel-gazing, beholding the glory of God, right? So the idea of the Christian faith is always if I want to become humble, I need to dedicate myself to thinking of something other than me, right? Redirecting your focus and saying, well, I'm already thinking about me, let's make it negative, right? That doesn't make you a more righteous person. And that might sound weird to you, but there are whole facets of asceticism, ascetic faith, that have existed in Christianity and in other religions that believe this is how you become more holy, by beating up on yourself, by thinking that you're the worst piece of scum that's ever walked the face of the earth. That's really righteous, man. That's really holy. Yeah, asceticism, Uh, the idea of denying yourself or abusing yourself even physically in order to enhance some spiritual awareness. That's not biblical. That's right. That's right. So uh, the only way out of the you call it the strangle knot of pride is to redirect your focus at something greater. Yeah, but don't think about it too much because, as again, as wiser minds than ours have observed, the more you peel the onion, the more it stinks. You're just like, well, am I reading this is again a quote? <laughs> am I am I proud? Well, would you say yes? I am proud in an effort to be more humble. <laughs> well, in your effort to be more humble, do you think that that's being motivated by pride to appear more humble than you are? And it's just like, oh no! The more I look at myself, oh, there's the problem. Yeah, that's the point. So when we're asking about the absence of pride, that's humility. That's focusing on God. What would then be the opposite of pride? How would we proactively pursue that other-centered focus? Yeah, no, absolutely. So the opposite of pride would be love, and that, that makes sense because Jesus says that the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. So uh, the other-focused life would be the life of love. The self-focused life is the life of narcissism or pride the absence of love, which I'd imagine God's not too fond of, not being him. Right. <laughs> so let us know if that helps you out, Nina. Again, not an order of issue, but pride definitely is up there because it's literally the anti-God mindset. And God wants the best for you, being him, not him, would be the problem. And the greatest manifestation of that just furthers the point. Um, I, I want to give this one more time because I'm trying to understand the question. Uh, I'll read it as it is. Ezekiel wants to know... Can we take communion for healing and riches, etc., or is this unworthy as Catholicism we should only take communion for salvation? Now, what I'm confused about is, are you making the assumption that communion is how we get saved, and if it can confer other blessings as well, because we don't believe either of those things? Communion's a remembrance of salvation, not a cause of it. If, on the other hand, we're asking uh, the attitude we bring to communion in an unworthy manner, that is a reference to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, where he reminds them, some of you have gotten sick and even physically died because you're taking communion in an unworthy manner. But it's not because they were trying to take communion to confer some spiritual blessing. 
other than the fact of the substance of the food. He goes on literally to explain, you guys are getting drunk off the wine. <laughs> you guys are, you know, you're being filled with the Spirit, but not the Holy Spirit, if you know what I mean. It's not that you guys are taking the bread hoping this sacred bread is going to make me rich or get me a good chariot parking spot or whatever. It was they were gorging themselves, whereas the people constituting the majority of the church in the first century, by the way, hadn't had a decent meal all week. So you're kind of being evil is the problem and doing it with communion and God's holding you accountable for that. That would be taking communion in an unworthy way. The idea of communion conferring a spiritual blessing apart from the expectation and hope, joy literally fulfilled, of our Lord, that all that's all that Scripture would emphasize on that. If you're asking again, do we just take it for salvation? No, we don't. Are, do we take it for blessings? No, we don't. I don't know if, if I'm missing something, or Ezekiel, if you're asking something else, let me know. But yeah. that's, I think, the most I can do. No, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, like like you said, John, uh, we don't believe that there's really any physical efficacy. So if I take communion uh, in order to receive uh, riches. So if I think like, well, I'm being faithful, I'm doing my righteous, holy thing, and I'm taking communion, therefore God's going to bless me in some sort of uh, supernatural and beautiful way within my life. I think I'm, I'm missing the whole point of communion. I'm definitely missing out on what the benefit of communion is. Like I said, communion could be one of the most beautiful things you do in your relationship with God. It could be a glorious, glorious time. And by the way, the reason why we take it collectively I've really enjoyed reading some of the early church fathers on this. One of the main symbols that they see in communion actually has to do with Paul's allegory in 1 Corinthians 12, where he compares the church of God to the body of Christ. So one of the main symbols that they point out is just as all the wheat has to be gathered together, crushed, and baked into a single piece of bread, he's like, so the church has been gathered together by God, crushed by his justice, and then raised again in his mercy. So really deep symbolism there. Uh, same with the grapes. They're like, in order to make the wine, you have to crush, you have to bring a lot of different grapes from a lot of different vines. You have to crush them, mix them into a singular substance, and then you have created something new. So in the same way, God has gathered together his people from many different varieties of spaces. He has crushed them again by his justice, showing us that we're not all we thought we were, but then he has elevated us through his grace in order that we might become something new. So really clear symbols there. And so when I go to communion and I'm looking for the symbols and I'm looking for uh, just communing with God, that's what the word communion means, drawing near to God and worshiping him for what he has done and what he's continuing to do in my life. It could be an amazing ceremony. That, that, that event in your life, whether you do it once a week or once a month or whatever, that could be just an incredible, incredible time with the Lord. But if you think like, this is saving me, or this is forgiving me of my sins, or therefore God is going to grant me, you know, a brand new car or something like that, you're missing all the benefits of communion. It's just a waste for you. All right, so just keep that in mind, Ezekiel. And again, if you were asking something else, let us know. We're, we're doing our best. Um, this is a question on YouTube from a name I will not be able to pronounce. I come <laughs> to peace with that. Um, their mother has has vivid dreams, and one includes Jesus knocking at the front door and said to her, I'm coming soon. She's very excited over these dreams. Is this a vision or what may be going on with her? Yeah, people have uh, spiritual experiences, a little bit of a <laughs> conglomeration of some biblical pictures there, but once again, how do we examine these things? I think that's going to be key. I'll uh, 
I'll keep filibustering until you're done taking a drink there. Uh, when we're talking about this issue, though, um, the two passages that are generally held in mind, Behold, I am coming quickly, one of the last chapters of the Bible, not one of the last chapter of the Bible, and, of course, the idea of him standing at the door and knocking in Revelation chapter 3. He gives this picture to the church of Laodicea. So the point being made is this. When we have dreams, it's Again, you can ask the how, the what, or the why. We don't always know the why. That's kind of the substance of your question, but we can test the why. We'll get to that in a moment. But when people are saying, uh, oh, this is uh, associated with Jesus, therefore it's biblical. No, no, no. That, as our, our dear mentor and beloved uh, father in the faith, Chuck Smith, would say, no, no, no. Always test prophecies. First Thessalonians 5, verses 19 through 21 says, Cling to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. So if someone has something that mentions Jesus or is associated with Jesus or gives us this insight into the person of Jesus, the first thing to do is to check it according to his word. Examine everything that Jesus supposedly said with what he certainly said and see if the two line up. If you're uh, mom, for example, was having a vivid dream that explained to her the day and the hour of the <laughs> return of the Lord. That would be in direct conflict with Matthew 24 and verse 36, where Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour, not the angels in heaven, his Father only. So if she's affirming plain statements in Scripture, there's one of two possibilities. It's from the outside in or it's from the inside out. The question then is, where does it ultimately point you? And that's the key to any sign. Are you saying, oh, I'm so spiritual, I'm receiving a vision, which again, I won't attribute to your mom, just make sure that's avoided. Or you can say, no, where did I remember those statements of Jesus before? Oh, Revelation 21. Oh, Revelation chapter 3. That is comforting. It's reminding me that he's coming soon, almost a, a subconscious communion service, if you will. But the point being made is just that name. The emphasis we have to make when testing and examining anything, whether we're sleeping or we're awake, whether we hear it from a pastor or from our neighbor, whether we think it's a vision or a dream, or even if an angel from God appears to us and preaches to us some new gospel which we have not received. What does Galatians chapter 1 say? And be accursed. No, <laughs> yeah. just don't. Yeah. So make sure that you examine those things with truth just because it's a vision, or even if it's a vision, it could just be a dream. Your mom's taking in a lot of the Word of God. Some of it's coming out in her subconscious. That's a wonderful thing. Who wouldn't want more Bible study? But if, on the other hand, it's being given to her by God, it would be literally the same thing. So either way, I don't think it really matters. As long as her attention is being focused on God, that, I think, is all we need to know about the why. Yeah. Um, another thing I'd like to point out is just the meaning of those words. When Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly, in Revelation chapter 22, some people have been like, well, you know, that was 2,000 years ago. His definition of quickly might be a little different than mine. Um, well, you, you're right. His definition of quickly is a little different than yours, because he's an eternal being, right? So Peter, uh, the Apostle Peter, not this Peter, uh, pointed this out in his second epistle, where he says, a day to the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. So when Jesus says, I'm coming quickly. Well, in relativity to the existence of the cosmos, he is coming quickly, right? 2,000 years isn't that, that, isn't that long. Um, but in relativity, I mean, to his existence, but in relativity to us, 2,000 years is a long time because we're only going to make it like 100 if we're, if we're lucky. So that's, that's something interesting to look at. If your mom is looking at these visions or these dreams, let's just say that they're dreams, 
And she's saying, aha, well, Jesus is communicating to me that he is coming quickly. That means that he is coming very soon, that his return is very is upon us, and I will see him when he comes back or something like that. Uh, that we can't really say with any certainty. Uh, Jesus said very clearly, no one will know the day or hour of my return, so we just don't know when Jesus is coming back. Could it be tomorrow? Yep. Could it be today? Absolutely. But we just don't know. When Jesus says, I am coming quickly in the word, just take it that way. Just tell your mom, hey, just take it that way. Jesus said that in the book of Revelation. You're seeing this in your dreams. That's very beautiful. It doesn't mean he's coming tomorrow, necessarily. It just means that he is coming quickly in relativity to his being. And so we we wait upon that. We know he's coming for certain, and we're waiting for that day with expectancy. All right. Um, Got another question on YouTube. Uh, In Matthew 12, uh, 39 through 40, the sign of the prophet Jonah, just as Jonah is three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Uh, the question is, did Jonah die in the whale, the great fish's belly? Uh, the concern that a lot of people have with this is, of course, to make sure that the parallel lines up exactly, that since Jesus was physically dead, it noted in the heart of the earth, does that mean that in order for the parallel or Uh, the reference for Jesus to fit the sign of the prophet Jonah. That means Jonah also had to die. Uh, Again, to the one who left the comment on YouTube, there are those who hold that theory, and they have a very sound biblical reason for doing so. If we go to the book of, uh, excuse me, the book of Jonah chapter 2, there's uh, interesting language that's being used to describe the condition that Jonah was in, and not just because he was in a warm-blooded creature's belly. He (laughs) describes it as having descended into Sheol. It says, out of Sheol, he cried. So, and again, that's Jonah chapter 2 and verse 1. People are wondering, well, is that then the idea that Jonah was in the place of the dead? Sheol literally means the grave. And that's when he cried out to the Lord, the Lord returned him to his body, and then the fish burped him up, or something else. That was the point that was being made. There's others that would continue to read the passage, and since it is a poetic prayer, in a prophetic context, granted, but a prayer nonetheless, he's asking for salvation. And in verse 10, it notes that he's vomited. We have one of two possibilities. Either he died and was resuscitated, not resurrected, but resuscitated, which is possible. That's happened plenty of times. Or he was preserved in life and just felt like he was dead because everything was black and hot and miserable and wet and not a good time. So the two possibilities, one way or another, what's the outcome? Jonah's back and he's preaching, and he's stinky, and he continues on his merry way. But the point of emphasis is there. We'd have to mince, or at least make a lot of emphasis on secondary details to say this has to be dogmatic, because regardless of the emphasis of Jonah, why did Jesus make the association? Was it the condition of Jonah or the time frame? And that's the point. Exactly. So he's making a time frame, and he's also, in the context, remember, the Pharisees are asking him for a sign, and he said, no sign will be given except for the sign of Jonah, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights inside the belly of the whale, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So what Jesus is saying is, he's not actually, you can't really get from that statement whether or not Jesus believed Jonah was dead or not, because that's not what he's talking about. He's saying, just as Jonah was in an irretrievable place— and had to be miraculously preserved and brought back, so I will go into an irretrievable place for three days and be miraculously brought back. That's that's the point. All right. Um, more questions from the same source. Uh, I'll note all of them because they're all the same 
event, just in different, uh, uh, not chronology, different uh, verse citation. In the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Matthew 16, 28, Jesus says, Verily I say to you, there are some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. In Mark chapter 9 and verse 1, Jesus said unto them, Verily I say to you, there shall be some that, sh- uh, that are standing here which shall not taste death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. And in Luke 9, 27, same point, I tell you the truth, there shall be some standing here which shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Uh, all caps, did this happen? Is Jesus lying? No, you just have to read the next verse, or in Matthew's case, the next chapter. It immediately goes on to report, and you can read along with me if you want, what event in the life of Jesus, the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, there's a very handy method of Bible interpretation that we always want to default to when it comes to these things, not just keep reading, not stop reading, to make a point but also to test conclusions. If I conclude, oh, so the coming of the kingdom of God in his power, that means second coming of Christ, baby. That's the, the you know, Revelation 19 action and stuff. You know, some of the people there is Jesus speaking of like some, you know, Raiders of the Lo- not Raiders of the Lost Ark, the Last Crusade guy hiding out in a cave that's, you know, got all of these things. No, what's being tested there is, again, the interpretation. If I say, oh, that has to be what it means, but then the chapter goes on immediately to describe Jesus demonstrating his glory, and I ask, well, is there any passages, is there any credence to the statement, was that the coming of the kingdom of God? Well, what's the kingdom of God? Where the king rules. And Jesus being shown in his glory would, in fact, be that. But the point being made is this. In... We can even go to maybe, for example, other commentators who mentioned the Apostle Peter thought that was what was being fulfilled. Let's make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. The kingdom is here. He wasn't wrong, but what would the Father then tell them all? This is my son. Hear him. (laughs) Just listen, Peter. Don't talk. (laughs) But the point being made is just that to the YouTube commenter. When we're talking about this issue, the problem people get with the interpretation is they assume the conclusion. They don't test it. They test the text, but not the conclusion. So what does the text stay? You will see the kingdom of heaven before you die. There'll be some here. Well, who were some of the people here? James, John, Peter, the people were brought up to see Jesus in his glory. We would take that to be a sound interpretation. If, on the other hand, we were to say, oh, well, that's referring to the second coming of Christ. Well, since Jesus didn't physically come back to rule and reign, fulfilling the Zechariah and Isaiah prophecies and so forth, Jesus failed his prophecy. Well, that doesn't make sense, especially in light of his resurrection. So I would go with another interpretation. That's why I would not take the view that it was the second coming as the kingdom and its power. It would be the transfiguration, which immediately fits into the verses that follow, or in Matthew's case, the next chapter. Yeah, and beyond that, it does matter. Again, this is one of those things of it does matter how the various listeners interpret it. So let me give you a corollary. Uh, In Joseph Smith's ministry, he made a very similar prophecy. He said that there are some standing here who will not who will not die until the Lord comes in His glory. Right? He and says he ex- something, yeah, he and he that. and he explains what he means. Now, did the followers of Joseph believe that they wouldn't die before Jesus would come back? They did, and they wrote extensively on it. You could find it in the Journal of Discourses, where Brigham Young writes about it. You could read about it in Oliver Cowdery's writing. Right? So they they actually thought that Joseph Smith was being literal. And as that generation started getting older and older, right, he actually brought someone up on stage with him and said, "This person <laughs> will not die until Jesus comes back." And uh, obviously, as that person was getting older, people are like, "Oh, dang it!" Uh, so. They, they absolutely believed it. But when you read the apostles writing about this event, like Sean said, 
none of them give any indication that they have confidence that Jesus would come back before they died. And the early Christian writers like Ignatius of Antioch, Clement of Rome, and um, Polycarp, none of them in any of their writings also claim that Jesus will come back during their lifetime. They all say he is coming back soon. They just, none of them give any indication that they know when or that they had confidence that he would come back before they died. In fact, a lot of them gave more confidence that they felt like they were going to be martyred. Right? So they, none of them yes, actually no, believe that. Yeah. say that. <laughs> yeah. so, and yeah. again, uh, this is the Apostle Peter speaking. Notice of all the things he could emphasize, this is Second uh, Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you, notice, the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. These are some very interesting terms. For he received from God the Father honor and glory. Receiving honor and glory. That's very Daniel-like terms, aren't they? Now notice, received honor and glory. When such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And we heard this voice, notice, we heard this voice, which came from heaven when we were with uh, him on the holy mountain. Now again, to the individual who left the comment, you look up the passages in Matthew chapter 17, later in Mark 9, and in later in Luke 9 and into chapter 10. What was that voice? That was the voice spoken on the Mount of Transfiguration, to which Peter, some of those who were there, didn't physically die before hearing. In fact, it was the immediate next event that took place. That's how we'd handle the text. So again, go for how the people who were there (laughs) interpret it, go for how the text itself interprets it, go to other texts to interpret it, and also make sure, test your interpretations. Make sure that the uh, plain sense makes sense, lest you believe in nonsense, as we say. And Don Stewart said first, but I'll belabor <laughs> that. Yeah. Um, question from Yari. I'll pass this to you, Peter, because I'm talking a lot. Uh, when Jesus is addressing the churches in Revelation, when he says, I will remove your lampstand, your candlestick, does that mean lost salvation or being taken home early or the church shutting down? What, what's the, I will remove your lampstand from its place? Yeah, interesting question. So when you read the book of Revelation, there is an explanation for these symbols, right? So there are a lot of symbols in the first couple chapters. Uh, the lampstands represent the church, right? They represent the church. So if Jesus is threatening to remove the lampstand, he obviously can't mean that he is going to remove their salvation. Why? Uh, because that specific reference to the church, he's not talking about the invisible ecclesiastical church that exists throughout all time, and that is just people who put their faith in Jesus across time and across culture and across continents. This is about specific fellowships, congregations that are meeting together. Now, he also can't mean a loss of salvation because there's no way Jesus could be like, well, you know, I don't like what the leadership is doing, so all of you are going to hell. You know, like, obviously, each person's going to be judged according to their own works. If there were faithful people that were members of that congregation, obviously God would uh, recognize their faith and he would reward them for that. And if there were people who were in the the good churches that were acting in heretical ways, God would recognize that and uh, give them according to their works as well. Yeah, even the bad churches among the letters. He says there are some even in Sardis, even in Pergamos, even in Thyatira who have not defiled their garments. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So it's not obviously a commutative punishment. But is there anywhere else in the Bible that would use that term lampstand, maybe even by Jesus himself, that would clarify its uh, application and what would be removed as a result? Uh, Well, yeah, I mean, I think that the very obvious thing that he's talking about is to remove the church, right? To, to remove it from his 
essentially from what he would uh, establish. So that to me seems like a very literal interpretation that Jesus is like, your church is going to go away, right? So yeah, um, in yeah. Matthew chapter 5, he gives several illustrations, one of which is that you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Notice, you have a purpose. If it doesn't fulfill that, it's just going to be cast aside. Right. You are the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Then he goes on to explain, so let your light shine before men, that they may get, uh, see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. If your church isn't doing those works, then what are they doing? I'm not going to use you to hold up my light anymore. But note, that doesn't mean a loss of relationship. It's a loss of, uh, I guess, occupation and purpose, specifically in Ephesus and anyone else who made the same mistake. If you don't have, like we pray often at the start of the broadcast, the heart of God, it doesn't matter what you're sharing, even the Word of God. We want to make sure we have both, not only, you know, we want love, not pride. <laughs> the point he made is that. Uh, we got about a minute. I don't want to drag this out too much, but let us know if that helps you out, Yari, and thank you all for your participation in the comments. Um, let's, and uh, I guess we can finish with this. Yari wants to know as a follow-up, should we hold to that confidence as well that we might be martyrs or die of disease instead of the rapture since we don't know? Uh, the whole point emphasis of the Christian hope, Yari, is I'll either see Jesus today or tomorrow. That should always be our default. If we're living as if we could see Jesus today, that's the right attitude, and imminency would in fact align with that, but for the sake of time I can't go into too much detail. Our confidence, again, shouldn't be that our Master delays his coming. Oh, I'm going to die someday, or I'm going to get sick someday. I am going to miss the rapture. That's the opposite attitude to have. What should our attitude be? Come, Lord Jesus. The same testament that the second to last verse of the Bible notes. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Even so, in light of what? Light of disease, light of martyrdom, light of anything. Let us know if that helps you out. And thank you all for giving us something to do for the last hour. Hopefully, it's been a benefit to you. We'll look forward to talking to you all again tomorrow on the same topic and hopefully uh, with new questions. But again, we have to be repetitious. It's beneficial for you. God bless you. We'll see you all again next time. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.